You have probably seen this evening's guest on the evening news or more likely on your social media feeds. Earlier this year, at the height of demonstrations and protests for Black lives, our guest found herself in the eye of the storm. Her workplace, the Colorado State Capitol, was the place dis disenfranchised, angry, and politically activated Coloradans congregated for social transformation. While much has been said about the cosmetics of unrest, graffitied masonry and shattered glass, tonight we will attend to what I understand as the weightier matters, social and political shifts that occurred with the ferocity of the 1919 Western Slope snowstorm, especially the shifts that have occurred in public policy regarding qualified immunity and the well-being well of Black Coloradans. Two years ago, the Honorable Leslie Herod garnered the distinction of being Malhai Theology's very first guest. And today, we are honored to welcome her back to the podcast. Please join me in welcoming Colorado State Representative Leslie Herod to this evening's episode. Welcome, Leslie. Hello, thank you so much for having me back. It's good to see you, friend. It's good to see you too. Uh, before we dive in, Representative Herod, I have a note for our live audience. If you are joining us on Zoom, please submit your questions for Representative Herod in the Q&A feature. And if you are joining us on Facebook Live, please submit your questions in the comments and I will do my best to pose them to our guest. Also, for the sake of clarity, today's interview is in no way an endorsement of Representative Herod's re-election campaign. Representative Herod, please tell us what a day in your life looks like right now. <laughs> oh, well, it is, um, it's different every day. I will say that um, there's a lot of zooming that happens, but um, by the grace of God, thank you. Um, we are getting out a little bit more into our communities. So um, I tend to have a lot of meetings back to back, talk to a lot of constituents. Sometimes you might find me doing work in Denver. Some other times you'll find me up in Summit County talking to their law enforcement officers across the county about 217. Um, and other reforms that we can make. And so it's a busy, a busy life. I'm definitely 13 hour days, even in this pandemic. And I will tell you the pandemic has only made it more busy. Um, but it is, a, it's an honor and a blessing to be able to do the work. Amazing. Well, thank you for, for fitting us in this evening and, and, and talking about the work with us. In July, the Atlantic Monthly carried an, carried an article about your work and it details the story behind a bill you authored that became the Enhanced Law Enforcement Integrity Act, which is a first in the nation law that allows victims of police violence to sue officers under state law. It bans chokeholds, overhauls the use of force, and significantly expands the use of body cameras. What exactly brought this law about? Yeah, well, you know, it is, um, uh, we are living in interesting times. And I will tell you that uh, I have been a part of protests for a long time, asking for accountability for law enforcement, especially for abuses against um, the black community. Um, and unfortunately, we have not made the progress that I had hoped that we would have made by now. So what brought this law about, honestly, was the death of Elijah McClain and the death of Devon Bailey. Um, I was working on a bill to address some of the issues there where, you know, we are seeing uh, black men running away from law enforcement and being shot in the back. That's what happened to Devon Bailey. 
Um, we also see officers using chokeholds, hiding their body cameras, um, and uh, harming people who weren't even suspected of a crime like Elijah McClain, and then murdering them. Um, and we had to do something about it. So I had a bill that I was working on, but my Democratic colleagues um, did not support the bill moving forward at the time because of COVID. Um, and so I didn't have a bill introduced. However, in the day back when we made it back to session um, to deal with the COVID pandemic, uh, there was a protest that happened outside in response to the murder of George Floyd. I went out to that protest and um, I was shot at, the group was shot at. Um, there were shots that rang into the crowd, one that went into the Capitol building. We kind of went for cover. And in that moment, um, you know, I was asked by my colleagues what they could do to support me, right? There was, everyone was very worried. Um, and I said, you know, I, I don't need your niceties. Right now I need policy change. And I want you to sign on to a bill that I am in the process of writing. <laughs> um, and I want you to sign on to it um, with the spirit and understanding that I'm, I'm gonna get this right and putting your faith and trust in a black woman to get this done. And I gotta tell you the great thing about it was that they did. Um, and they all signed on in support and we got to work on reforming um, law enforcement. Um, the pieces, the components of the bill are significant. And I am honored that, that folks put their trust in me to get this done. Um, but it was not a Democrat bill. It was actually supported by Democrats and Republicans, bipartisan support. And now um, at, upon its passage and signing into law, um, we have 70% of support from Coloradans across the state. So um, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we were able to get done. There's so much more work that we need to do. But the reason why we had the pressure to actually get all of these components in a bill, to end qualified immunity first in the nation to do so, was because of the protests that were happening right outside. Mm. The protests that were happening day after day after day. We heard you, we heard people outside. We saw the tear gas, we felt it in the building. And that changed the climate 100% in the building. I did not have the support to move that bill forward before. And in its broader form of 217, I had the support that I needed. It's because people were out there protesting. And the thing that I love about this too, Pastor, is that it wasn't just people protesting in Denver. People were protesting in Eagle County, in Grand Junction, in Vail, in Boulder, across the state. And that pressure on their legislators to act too. They couldn't say this was just a Denver problem. So that's what brought this bill about. But one more thing I wanna add is that I'm a black woman and I have a black brother. And it is very terrifying to be stopped by the police. And our interactions are not great, you know? My brother is a doctor. He's a doctor in the Navy, but he's also a 6'3", 300 pound black man. And he gets pulled over and stopped too often because he is black driving a nice car in a nice neighborhood that is his own. That doesn't need to happen. And we are lucky and blessed that, that you know, nothing has happened to us by law enforcement, but we know that it is an option and it could happen. We don't need to live like that anymore. We need to make sure that there's accountability and then we actually change the core of who's policing us. And that's what we're trying to do with 217. So you would say that what led to this is a synergy between personal experience, organized protests, policy analysis, um, kind of synergistically making all of this come about, which is really Absolutely. amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, 
and timing. I mean, it was the timing of it all too, you know, it, it all made a difference. What do you say to those who feel as if the Enhanced Law Enforcement Integrity Act doesn't go far enough? Um, yeah. And for those who are more interested in abolition than reform, and then what do you say to those who say that the ELEIA goes too far? Yeah. So first I would say that it doesn't go far enough. Um, not one, one bill is not a panacea, you know? We have to continue to work on these issues until we build the community that we deserve and that we, we are proud of. That takes continuous work. Every year I get a bill that reforms nursing or that, um, that puts more legislation on businesses. Why is it that a law enforcement officer is less regulated than my trash man or woman or my doctor or my teacher? That shouldn't be. We have to keep at this until we get it right. We can no longer allow the police to police the police. That's not working. You know, it's not working. So what I would say to those who say it's not enough, I would agree with you and say, let's do more together. Bring me your ideas. Tell me what we need to do. I believe that we need to require ongoing psychological evaluations for law enforcement. Mm. Um, I believe that we need to take DAs out of the process and create a new process for oversight of um, bad officers. So I believe that there's a lot more that we can do, but we can't let the perfect get in the way of the good. And we have to push forward. And what we've done in Colorado is something that no one else, no other state has been able to do. And we should be proud of that. And we should also continue to demand that change. And for those who say that it goes too far, I would say that it is not. Um, my father, was law enforcement for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, he was the head of internal investigations for Supermax Prison down in Florence, Colorado. Started as a groundskeeper and worked his way up. He is the best man that I know. Um, and in our conversations, he, we talk often about how law enforcement is able to move in our communities, especially local police, in a way that um, disparages the entire profession and in a way that does not support our communities and quite frankly, sometimes is racist. Um, these are the same conversations I'm having with the chief of police right here in Denver, who is a Denver native, who is a Latino man, who says if his badge wasn't on, you know, um, that there might be different outcomes. So we've got to push harder. We've got to demand better. This is not the profession that has the ability to end someone's life but it also has the ability to lift up and build communities. And that's what we need to do. I also say support the work of STAR. Caring for Denver is a ballot measure that I ran in partnership with so many of you all to provide mental health and substance use supports for people right here in Denver. We are now in our first year of operations as the largest mental health foundation in the state. And we have created a model where in downtown Denver, if you call 911 because someone is having a mental health or substance use crisis, you don't get a law enforcement officer. Instead, you get a mental health professional and an EMT who can respond in a way that is more responsive and more close to the need of that person. I'm proud to say that STAR has been in existence since June and has not once had to call law enforcement for backup, but has been called by law enforcement for backup multiple times because they wanna get these resources to people too. 
So when we talk about abolition, when we talk about defund the police, what we're really talking about too is shifting resources so that our community has what we need. And right now we don't, and that's what we're working on. Well, and, I, and, and we'll get to the theological reflection on this later. Um, I think you're touching on um, actually my meditation that we're gonna end with, which is about imagination. And what spurred that on for me is that it appears to me that so many of the issues um, that as a society we can't quite solve or um, don't have the will to work on or improve is really a failure of imagination more so than anything. That we mm -hmm. can't imagine a circumstance in which a mentally ill person is taken care of by a mental health professional, which is more proportionate to their needs than a law enforcement officer. Um, so thank you for touching on, on, you know, really a failure of imagination and then being able to imagine systems that actually um, serve all of us better. Yeah. You mentioned earlier qualified immunity and that has become a term that sort of entered um, public discourse in a way that it hasn't before. Please define qualified immunity for our listeners. So it's interesting. Um, I didn't know what qualified immunity was until I ran this bill uh, and started to look at and figure out why we could not hold law enforcement officers accountable. It is illegal to stop someone who's not committing a crime, just going about their day-to-day -day activities. That is illegal in this country, but it's happening every day to Black people, brown people, low-income people, and unfortunately, others in our communities too. So the reason is because public officials, including myself, but obviously I'm very different than law enforcement officer, um, but law enforcement officers in particular have this thing called qualified immunity, meaning that a lot of times when there are cases that are brought about because they have violated someone's constitutional rights, they just get thrown out of the court and say that that person is immune from, um, pro from civil prosecution, okay? Mm -hmm. So what we've done was we got rid of qualified immunity for local law enforcement officers so that if they violate someone's constitutional rights, constitutional rights, that they could be held personally responsible for that. It's hugely important. Um, and so could their employer, which would be these, the police departments. Because right now, we are in a place where it's like someone has to die, right? Before we can even start to think of accountability. And quite frankly, we rarely get it then either. But what about stopping it sooner? Um, that's what 217 tries to get at. We're not trying to continue to see mothers lose their babies and fathers lose their children. That has to end, you know? Um, qualified immunity lets people act with immunity, and that's wrong. Um, and so that is what we are rolling back there. I'm Broderick Greer, host of Mile High Theology, and I'm joined by Leslie Heron, a member of the Colorado House of Representatives. My final question for you, Representative Heron, what does a state that is safe for Black Coloradans look like? Yeah, you know, I think this is really an amazing question and um, I look forward to, to imagining that with you, um, what that could actually look like. But for me, it means that uh, 
a mother doesn't have to have the conversation that me and my brother had with my mother, which was um, to fear law enforcement, to if, if don't call law enforcement when you're in trouble, if you could call anyone else first. You know, my mom, I remember being in an incident when someone um, in Colorado Springs, uh, we move around often in the military, um, it was a kid and he came to the house and it used to be his house. Um, and he was pretty upset about um, us moving in. And that moment, it was very interesting because the kid really lashed out at me and called me the N-word for the first time in my life I'd ever been called that. Um, and my brother and him end up getting in a fight. And I called 911 because there's someone else on our property who is fighting us and calling us these names and all this stuff. And I am grateful that somehow, I guess I called my mom and 911, but she ended up at the house right before the officer got there. And she got my brother into the house, um, you know, closed the door and in her uniform, which does matter, had a conversation with the officer and made it so that my brother was not the one who was taken in, right? That there wasn't some awful outcome because he's some big guy. Really, he was probably 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I had the conversation with my mom where I thought I did the right thing. And instead I got in trouble and had to have this talk about what could actually happen when you call the police when my brother is around or when we're around, that is not the outcome. It will be the outcome that we think. And it's, it's not a just system. And so for me, um, a Colorado that is safe for black people means that we don't fear law enforcement, that when we call 911, we get the resources that we need. And a lot of times that's not the criminal justice system, right? Um, that we don't have the achievement gaps of Black people graduating high school at much lower levels as our white counterparts or our health disparities, as we've seen through with COVID, be astronomically different or our economic opportunities being so poor compared to our counterparts. These are are bricks of discrimination and injustice that have been built in our system and in our code for so long in this country and we have to change it. But Roderick, I couldn't have this conversation with you without also talking about what happened um, in Denver this weekend, where violence is just begetting more violence and people are um, spinning out of control, spinning lies on social media, um, where you have someone who is, is killed, um, who came you know, ready, for, ready for violence with violent weapons on them. You know? um, this does not have to happen. We have to pray for our city, we have to pray for our country, and we have to keep fighting for racial justice, right? But nonviolence is a huge component of our our movement and the movement for Black lives, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Voting is important in our movement for Black lives, um, but having a conversation about racial justice and not backing down and not backing away is what we need to do right now. So when we imagine, I know a lot of us imagine what we would have been like in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. The romanticization mm-hmm. of the movement is so fascinating to me and I, I, I'm guilty of it too, you know? But in those really tough times, who would we have been? We ask ourselves that a lot. But we don't have to ask ourselves anymore. We're living it right now. So who are you? And how are you standing up for your community? Um, that's what I ask myself every single day and I know so many of you all do as well. Who are we? How are we standing up? And what are we gonna do to lead change? From um, one of our members at at St. John's, do you think that qualified immunity should be identified by indemnified 
by the requirement for police and gun owners to carry insurance. Owning or operating or holding access to lethal force, force does this status inherently make someone such as a police officer require a kind of practical insurance or practice insurance, recertification, cross-training supported by, that is also used by other professions? Absolutely. This is a great question. And this is something that we are working to get at through 217. Um, so right now, law enforcement is um, certified. It's the post um, board certification. So peace officer standards and training. And then they have to go through ongoing training, which we are looking at because I, for one, don't think it's rigorous enough. And I don't think a lot of folks do. Mm -hmm. On top of that, in 217, we put this personal liability piece on there where if a law enforcement officer acts in bad faith, they're required to pay $25,000 um, to that victim or 5% of the entire settlement. Um, and that is getting at um, the personal responsibility, but also is it welcoming in insurers to come in in the insurance market to come in and insure officers, just like my brother, who's a doctor, has to carry medical malpractice insurance. Mm -hmm. And so that is what we are working towards. Now, it's not written um, explicitly in the bill, um, but it's something that is we're creating a, a scenario and a system where that is lifted up and that 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 um, climate is created. So we already have insurance companies coming in to pilot those type of models right here in Colorado. Eventually, we'd like to get a. I'd like to get to a place where law enforcement officers are um, required to carry personal insurance, um, and all gun owners are required to carry personal insurance mm -hmm. when they have a weapon. I believe it's the responsible thing to do, but I also believe that market factors come in, and you know, I don't want my car insurance to go up, so I try to drive a little bit better. Um, and I would hope that you wouldn't want your personal insurance to go up as a law enforcement officer, so you act a little bit better. And then if you're uninsured. Mm -hmm. And you're uninsurable, then you shouldn't be operating a weapon and you shouldn't be employable. So those are where we're kind of going towards in Colorado, ideally. Um, and that was some of the re the rationale behind the $25,000 provision. Amazing. So great question. Thank you so much for asking. Really good it. question. We have one more question. This will be our last question for the evening. In relationship to the last question, what are the most common objections and what would you see as the best answers to, you know, having insurance for? Um, and I think you sort of have answered that a little. Yeah, I mean, it, people don't want change, right? They don't want change. Um, but these insurance, um, it will cost a dollar a day for good actors, right? Um, it's not expensive. It's not absurd. It's not, it is, it is directly related to their salaries. Um, so it, it makes a lot of sense. But um, at the end of the day, change is hard. And people feel like, you know, law enforcement feels like they're being targeted by this bill. But we regulate oil and gas every day. We regulate businesses every day. We regulate doctors and nurses and teachers. And we should do the same for law enforcement. So mm -hmm. um, I, I welcome the conversation about imagining something a little different. Imagining a place where we can, we can live and work together um, and be safe and be safe. But sometimes safety is not just prison or jail. Sometimes safety is providing those opportunities before we even get there. And that's what I hope to see in our communities. One of the best synonyms of the word faith I've ever heard was suggested by the very Reverend Richard Lawson, Dean of St. John's Cathedral. And that word, that synonym is imagination. To have faith, if you will, is to have the capacity to imagine something beyond 
something better, something more beautiful than our current realities. It is to have the eyes of a creative God. It is waking up every day and saying, God, what will you and I do together today? What will we heal? What will we create? What will we repair? When I hear people like Leslie Harrod and the countless activists and organizers who are transforming our common life in Colorado and the United States, imagining aloud a better and more beautiful world, my heart sings a new and ancient song that God is still God and will never give up on this beautiful and strange world of ours. Malhite Theology is a production of St. John's Cathedral and Episcopal Church in Denver, Colorado. To financially support the work of this podcast in St. John's Cathedral, visit sjcathedral.org forward slash give. That is sjcathedral.org forward slash give. I offer special thanks to our guest, the Honorable Leslie Harrod, our communications director and producer, Evans Owsley, our Christian formation assistant, Christina Rutland, Cathedral Administrator, Georgie Brooks Myrtle, Sophie Hackett, Representative Harrods, very gracious outreach director, Noah Glenn, who composed our theme music, and you, our loyal listeners. If you do not know your status as a voter in the United States ahead of next month's election, please visit IWillVote.com. That is IWillVote.com to check your status and make a voting plan. Next month, we will be joined on Monday, November 9th at 6 p.m. to discuss the preceding week's presidential election with the Reverend Dr. Pamela Leitze, Vice President and Associate Professor for Meadville Lombard Theological School. This podcast was recorded on Arapaho land.